Hi, Dense Friends, and welcome to the Dense Edit Podcast. I'm Margaret Fuhrer. I'm Courtney Escoyne. And I'm Amy Brandt. Amy, back for another round this week. Um, In today's episode, we will talk about how philanthropist Mackenzie Scott included a whole bunch of dense groups in her latest massive round of donations and about the ideas that motivated Scott's giving. We will look at the burgeoning world of virtual reality dance, its pros and cons, and how it might or might not disrupt the performance ecosystem. We will discuss dancer and sociologist Carmela Dormani's essay about how community dance is the real star of the In the Heights film. And then we'll have our interview with Ayadeli Cassell and Toria Beard, renowned dance world creatives who are partners in both art and life. And I don't usually play favorites this way, but I gotta say, this is one of my favorite interviews in Dance Edit podcast history. They are, first off, both of them just brilliant. They're also every bit as generous in an interview context as they are in their artistic work, which if you know anything about their artistic work, you know it's always rooted in generosity and joy. I'm just so excited for you all to hear their perspective on what makes their partnership work and how dance can speak to issues of race and identity and politics. It's such a fantastic conversation. But before we get into all of that, we actually have some exciting news of our own to share. We are about to launch a new premium audio interview series, which we are calling the Dance Edit Extra. And the idea here is that the Edit Extra will act as kind of a complement to this podcast. Um, We'll still be doing our weekly roundtable news discussions. They'll still drop every Thursday. That's not going to change. But our interviews with dancers and choreographers and educators, those are going to become their own independent episodes, which you can subscribe to separately. And it's a change that we think is going to give these great conversations a little bit more breathing room, just like some more time and space. Um, Anyway, The Dance Edit Extra will be launching very soon, and you can find out more about that at thedanceedit.com. Okay. Now it's time for our weekly dance headline rundown, which is super duper jam packed this week. So let's go. All right. So Juneteenth is this Saturday and there are a number of dance centric celebrations planned. So here are a few that are on our radar. Uh, The Ailey All Access Juneteenth program went live last night as you're listening to this and will be available for streaming for the next week with excerpts from Rennie Harris's Lazarus, a 1972 film of Judith Jameson in Cry, and the company in the Rock of My Soul section of Revelations. Ailey Extension is offering a free West African class this Saturday at noon Eastern. The National Center Choreography Center at the University of Akron is premiering Reframe Remnant Ritual, a series of short dance films by Ananya Chatterjee, Paloma McGregor, and Tamara Williams on Saturday at 3 p.m. Eastern on YouTube. 651 Arts in Brooklyn will kick off its celebrations of a full weekend of dance film screenings, both outdoors and online, featuring Wata, Charles O. Anderson's Recurrent Unrest, Marjani Forte Saunders's Memoirs of a Unicorn Blueprint, and the premiere of Cyborg Heaven, an examination of the Black Earth urban experience through house ballroom culture and hip-hop. Step Africa presents a virtual celebration on YouTube and Facebook Saturday at 8 p.m. with newly filmed iterations of some of its classic works. Uh, Central Avenue Dance Ensemble presents a night at Club Alabama vintage nightclub floor show online Saturday at 1 p.m. Pacific, that's 4 p.m. Eastern. And Lincoln Center's multidisciplinary Juneteenth celebration will include dancers Brian Harlan Brooks, Tomoe Carr, and Ayodele Cassell, all directed by Toria Beard, this Saturday at noon. There's a lot going on. I've probably missed a lot of it, but like, yay. 
A lot going on. And a lot of it happening online so people, no matter where you are, can participate, which is also great. Swiss public broadcaster RTS has reported that Ballet Bejar Luzon has been placed under audit over allegations of drug use, harassment, and abuse of power. This comes a week after the company's affiliated academy, the Rudra Bejar Ballet School, fired its director and stage manager and suspended classes for the forthcoming year due to, quote, serious shortcomings, unquote, in management. Apparently, this is not the first time the company has come under audit. Similar allegations were made in 2008, although no changes uh, were significantly put in place. Clearly, there is a lot to parse here. Um, So we'll link to some coverage that explains a little bit more completely what's going on in the show notes. And Dance Data Project published its artistic and executive leadership report detailing the gender distribution at 100 ballet companies and the pay gap between male and female leaders. At the 100 largest companies, women artistic directors are paid 60 cents for every dollar their male counterparts received and 80 cents to the dollar in executive director roles. Now, there are lots of other statistics to unpack and cite here, but most notable was the way that former New York City Ballet Ballet Master-in-Chief Peter Martins continues to skew numbers. In the fiscal year that ended June 2018, his total compensation was in excess of $1.1 million, a number that is 1.5 times larger than that of the next highest paid artistic director that year, despite him having retired in January 2018, the middle of that. And in the following year, during the entirety of which he was retired, his total compensation was 1.3 times that of the next highest paid artistic director. Now, it could be part of a severance package. Those details aren't known, but it has definitely raised a lot of eyebrows. Yeah, and we'll link to Dance Magazine's analysis of the report for some more context on all that information, too. The Paris Opera Ballet has promoted Korean ballerina Se In Park to Etoile, the company's highest rank. The Opera House director, Alexander Neef, made the announcement last week following a performance of Romeo and Juliet in which Park starred in the title role. She joined Paris Opera Ballet in 2011 and is the company's first South Korean principal dancer. She previously danced with the Korean National Ballet and spent one year with the ABT Studio Company. Yay, congratulations to her. Huge congrats. And the massive artistic director shift continues with the news that Kathy Marston will be the next director of Ballet Zurich, succeeding Christian Spook in summer 2023. And though there's been no official announcement, uh, Spook will reportedly be heading to Staatsballet Berlin. Yeah, I'm really excited to see what Kathy Marston ends up doing in Zurich. I, like as director of Bern Ballet a few years back, I know she was all about commissioning and making new works. So that might be the case in Zurich too. It'll be exciting to see. Very. Okay, the annual Dance Against Cancer Benefit will be live and in person this year on June 21st and will be New York City's largest ticketed in-person dance event since the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, the performance will feature... A slew of dance stars, including Tyler Peck, Hisio, Lloyd Knight, Ayudeli Cassell, Matthew Rushing, and Dance Against Cancer co-founder and New York City Ballet star Daniel Ulbricht. Also, what's notable is um, Kevin Bozeman, the brother of late actor Chadwick Bozeman, will also be performing. He was a dancer with the Martha Graham Dance Company and Alvin Ailey, and he is also a cancer survivor. Uh, This year, the live show will be held at Lincoln Center's Damrosh Park, and it will also be live streamed. Proceeds go to the American Cancer Society, and you can find out more information at DACNY.org. 
and dancer and co-host of The Talk, Amanda Klutz, has a new memoir out about losing her husband, Broadway star Nick Cordero, to COVID-19 last year, a story that many of us watched unfold in real time on Instagram last spring and summer. Uh, By all accounts, a riveting read. Netflix just released the trailer for the film adaptation of Jonathan Larson's largely autobiographical musical Tick, Tick, Boom. It will be directed by none other than Lin-Manuel Miranda with choreography by Ryan Heffington. Uh, Andrew Garfield will star as Larson, who, as many of you know, is the genius behind the musical Rent and who tragically died the day before the show's off-Broadway premiere. The film will open in theaters and premiere on Netflix later this fall, so be sure to tune in. Yeah, Lin-Manuel continues to be absolutely everywhere. But from the looks of that trailer, he and Ryan Huffington have a very different creative vibe than the In the Heights team did. So curious to see where that led them. Mm-hmm. I also just would love to have been in the room when like Ryan and Lynn met for the first time. I <laughs> can't fathom what that energy was, but I'm intrigued by it. The energy was exactly the word I was going to say. Those are two very different energies meeting, maybe creating great things. <laughs> Uh, And we are rounding out our roundup this week by recognizing more dance world losses. Former Australian ballet star Lucette Aldous died at age 82. Bella Malinka-Dahl, a dancer, choreographer, and educator who taught for decades at the LaGuardia High School of Music and Art and Performing Arts, died at age 98. And longtime Paul Taylor musical director Donald York passed at age 73. Ugh, another week of heavy losses. So for our first roundtable segment today, we want to discuss a major piece of mainstream news, um, which is that philanthropist Mackenzie Scott, formerly Mackenzie Bezos, just announced that just announced another $2.74 billion in giving, which is bananas. This is actually the third time in less than a year that she's announced a big group of grants. But um, what's notable, at least from our perspective this time around, is that Several of the 286 total recipients are dance organizations. And the list that uh, Scott revealed it in a post on Medium, it focuses on arts nonprofits and groups working to combat racial discrimination. And it includes Alonzo King Lines Ballet, Alvin Ailey, Ballet Hispanico, Collage Dance Collective, Dance Theater of Harlem, the International Association of Blacks and Dance, and Urban Bushwomen, which, wow, that is a list. Um, We don't know the exact amounts of all the donations. DTH did reveal that their gift was $10 million, their largest single gift ever. So it seems like we're talking about game-changing amounts of money here. Um, We just want to get into how and why Scott went about selecting this group of recipients and about what this news says about both the larger world of charitable giving and also the larger arts funding landscape. Yeah, $10 million is certainly a game-changer. I mean, I... In my own experience, I worked for a company that received a million dollar donation, then we put on a brand new production of The Nutcracker. So like this, you know, this this kind of substantial gift can really do wonders and go very far in these organizations. So it's really exciting to see. And it also is exciting to see that the dance community was remembered, you know, and particularly Mm -hmm. these organizations. So in her blog post on Medium, which is sort of interesting in and of itself, the the way she goes about her philanthropy is, you know, it's not through a foundation, it's through her as an individual, and she kind of makes an announcement on Medium. And in that blog post, she talked about, you know, while she was sort of explaining all the different organizations and the reasons why they were 
selecting the ones that they did. You know, she talked about how arts and cultural institutions can really strengthen the communities that they're a part of and foster empathy um, and reflect identity, advance economic mobility and improve academic outcomes. I'm just sort of reading this off of her her blog posts. And I really do think that, you know, these organizations do that. They're, they're vital parts of their communities and are often, you know, overlooked. Another thing that's interesting about this is that there are no strings attached to these donations. Um, she mm-hmm. is giving them complete autonomy on how to spend it, which, you know, foundations often kind of earmark where they want the money to go. But in this instance, she's just saying, you know where this money needs to go. I'm, I trust you to use it in the way that works best for you, which is really great, I think. Well, and I think something that comes up often when you are talking to, say, individual artists who receive this kind of unrestricted grant, it is absolutely freeing. It allows you to focus on whatever it is you need to focus on rather than saying, okay, we got this grant. So now we have to hit these specific benchmarks that we were given when we applied for it. We have to put on this specific new production. Oftentimes, it actually creates more work, which further straps the company in various ways or the individual in various ways. Uh, So unrestricted grants like this are absolutely incredible. Mm -hmm. Something that I know I have heard when talking to, say, individual artists who get those is understanding if you are getting this influx of money for the first time, how do you deal with this in the most financially responsible way that you're not going to get completely messed up at tax time and things like that. So the hope is, is that these organizations already have an infrastructure in place that's going to allow them to make the absolute most of this. Something that I kind of wish would also be happening with this philanthropic effort, uh, which isn't necessarily the case because this is not a foundation, is is there additional support being provided in case these organizations could use it in terms of figuring out how to mo- best capitalize on this? So there are, I think there are pros and cons here for this not being a foundation-based thing. Yeah, and there's been some other criticism of Scott, too, for, I mean, not just being more generally transparent about her selection process, because she's not a foundation, she doesn't have to do that. So it's kind of up to her how much she discloses about that. Um, and also for not using her wealth this is more broadly speaking, but not using her wealth to more directly counter the influence of Amazon, the company that got her these billions. Like some people are saying, she could be investing in think tanks or policy organizations that are actually shaping policy in ways that could have a large scale effect on inequality, which that's all valid. But I think the bottom up approach that she's taking is also critically important. I mean, supporting these arts groups who are out in the community every day doing, you know, boots on the groundwork that uplifts and transforms and fosters empathy. Not that I'm biased, but come on, there's so much value in that too. Yeah. And there's also something we said for uh, if you look at the way that grants tend to be awarded and the way that mm-hmm. donations tend to work, you are more likely to get more grants and more donations if you can point to, hey, look, I already got this particular support. Right. And a lot of these organizations, for all that, as far as we're concerned, they are the best of the best. Uh, We love what they do. They do such important things. They're so significant to the dance community and the communities they exist in. But from a philanthropic perspective, they've not necessarily always been funded at that level. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and we've seen other initiatives over the past year from the Ford Foundation, from the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, trying to shift these in- inequities in funding, trying to shift the conversation about who, quote unquote, deserves funding. And so this, hopefully, not only is it going to make like an actual real appreciable difference in what they are able to offer and sustain, but also in terms of what future gifts and grants they are able to get. Mm-hmm. Yeah, hopefully it snowballs. Yeah. Yeah. I'm looking forward to seeing how they use the funds. Yeah, it really is is going to be transformative for these organizations. The fact that, you know, the fact that they included, like, obviously, there are some really big name brands in there, like Alvin Ailey, of course. Um, but the fact that, like, IABD, for example, was also included, they so often get sidelined in these conversations, despite this critical work they've been doing for decades. The fact that they're in there feels like a good indicator of the depth of research involved on the part of Scott and her team. Mm-hmm. Um So a lot to be excited about there. Okay, next we'd like to unpack a feature that ran in the Financial Times earlier this week about Boston Ballet's experiments with virtual reality, Um, because the company recently commissioned three choreographers to either create from scratch or redesign ballets specifically for viewing with a VR headset to sort of tailor their works to the strengths um, and also the limitations of this medium. And that raises a lot of questions about the potential of VR dance. Like, could it become its own subgenre, like a different way of thinking about performance and the relationship between dancer and spectator? Um, What possibilities does that technology open up? I I mean, big caveat here, we should note that Boston Ballet is far from the first dance company to experiment with VR. It's not even the first ballet company to do so. There's like a whole world of immersive dance makers out there. But this story is a good way into an idea that It does feel sort of newly urgent, maybe thanks to the pandemic. Yeah. So as you pointed out, Margaret, uh, this is not a new thing in ballet. Uh, Back in 2016 and 2017, it was it seemed like everyone was doing some sort of (laughs) VR experiment. Dutch National Ballet had something. English National Ballet produced a section of Akram Khan's Giselle to be viewed in VR. The Royal Ballet snow scene was done for VR. So there's a lot of experimentation that's already been done in this field and also beyond just VR getting into augmented reality, which is a similar but different thing that I'm not going to get into here because I don't know nearly (laughs) enough about it to speak about it intelligently. But uh, something that really struck me, though, in this conversation was talking about, like, what if we got beyond VR and got into haptics where you can start dealing with things like scent and touch and all of the things that I think for a lot of us we don't necessarily think about uh, being part of the experience of physically going to see a dance show, but could be a part of it. Uh, if you're watching a dancer and through a VR headset and seeing them right in front of you, but not necessarily like feeling their feet moving on the floor or feeling the rush of air as they move past you, is it the same experience? I would argue not. Now, of course, there are limitations to consider. The way you have to choreograph for VR is completely different because there's a whole 360-degree view thing going on and everything's choreographed around a circle and it's very complex. It's a whole different set of skills. But then also, it does bring up issues of access because on the one hand, it becomes accessible to... I could be sitting here in my apartment and experiencing a ballet by a company that's miles and miles and miles and miles away from me without having to leave my home. But also, I have to have this very expensive oculus headset in order to experience it so Mm -hmm. accessibility becomes a question here i also wonder about um the big picture you know when you watch a performance from the stage or even on film you 
you get to take it in as a whole, as the whole picture. And when you're in it and within the piece, like I'm sort of interested in how a choreographer would approach that because it's the message mm -hmm. could get fragmented. If you're only watching one person say for part of it, you might miss what's going on behind you. And how do you navigate that like as a choreographer? Um, or is that part of the experience that, you know, you can watch it over and over again from a different perspective and get something completely new each time. Mm -hmm. This is such a weird poll. It's going to sound so weird. Um, I was going through the Dance Magazine archives and I found like an essay written by Gene Kelly talking about filming the ballet sequence in An American in Paris. And he was talking about how uh, when you're choreographing something in a theater, you have to accept the fact that every single member of the audience is going to be seeing a slightly different performance because of where they're sitting and the angle they're sitting at and what they choose to focus on. Whereas if film is going to contribute anything, you get to essentially control the spectator's eye by the using power. the camera. You have all the power. And he was saying, if film is going to have any contribution to dance, that's what it has to be. And so it's really interesting to now be arriving at a place 70 years later where we're talking about a situation where, yes, the choreography, choreographer and cinematographer are controlling the dancer eye, but because of VR, that eye can now actually go anywhere. So right. it's just the biggest yes and. Yeah, exactly. You're handing some of that power back to the audience. I want to come back to the idea of access too, um, mm. because naturally, Sydney Skybetter was quoted in this article, of course. Mm -hmm. um, and his quote had to do with how disruptive technologies have been a part of dance for a long time. Like the stage, the proscenium stage itself was a piece of disruptive technology when it first appeared, which was interesting. But what was more interesting was that Sydney actually on Twitter later clarified that that had been taken a little bit out of context, that what he was actually talking about was how all performance-related technologies raise questions of access and inclusion. Like, who has the means, as Courtney was saying, to try out VR headsets? For that matter, who has the means to try out proscenium stages or, like, point shoes, you know? Mm -hmm. So interesting as these experiments are, what Sydney's saying is that VR isn't going to be, like, the future of dance until a much broader range of dance organizations and audience members have, like, a realistic way of accessing it which I thought was worth saying. Yeah, it'll be interesting to know how companies handle that. Yeah. I've only I've only experienced VR one time. I borrowed I had a friend who had had an Oculus that I borrowed and it was cool, you know, but it's probably not <laughs> something I would go out and buy myself. Um it was actually pretty funny because there I played this game where you're basically you go up in an elevator and the elevator opens and you're standing on just like a metal like 2 by 4 and you're it, but like so you feel like you're like 200 stories up this sounds terrifying it is terrifying i was completely frozen sweating like being completely irrational because i didn't want to fall oh, <laughs> this sounds like a, a metaphor for performance in some way too I, I just don't know how common they are yeah you know how many people out there actually own one of these things well lots of interesting questions there um all right so Last up today, we have one more discussion about the In the Heights film. And I know, I'm sorry, we are all in the Heights all the time these days, but Dance Magazine just published an essay by dancer and sociologist Carmela Muzio-Darmani that offers a different and I think really valuable perspective on 
why the film's dance scenes are so important to its storytelling. So Dormani is a professional salsa dancer whose research focuses on the politics of everyday culture in cities. So she's basically exactly the expert who should be analyzing the dancing in this movie. And she applauds the film for highlighting the dances created by New York City's Black and Latino working class communities, these dances that people from Washington Heights actually see and do all the time. Um, And her argument is that focusing on those dances drives home the film's central anti-displacement narrative in a uniquely effective way. Like gentrification is threatening to push members of this community out of their space. And instead, we see them literally filling that space with their own joyful movement, which is kind of beautiful. Not to say that Dormani is uncritical of In the Heights, and we should discuss her hesitations too, because I think in some ways they actually relate to the broader conversation happening right now about colorism in the film. Um, there's just there's a lot to get into here. Um, so this is definitely another one of those stories where we're kind of just here to encourage you to go read it in its entirety, and I know it's going to be linked in the show notes. Um, mm-hmm. Here, there is a quote that I would like to read from this. Um, While there is plenty of Broadway-esque pageantry in the big musical dance numbers, the real magic of the film is that it foregrounds dance styles that were created and nurtured in New York's Black and Latino working-class communities, and uses those movement traditions to showcase community members occupying physical space. In a show about displacement, poor people's removal from neighborhoods to make room for wealthier residents, taking up space becomes a form of resistance. Filling that space with joyful movement becomes revelatory. I mean, that's it. I mean, my paraphrasing of that in the intro wasn't really paraphrasing. It was almost direct quoting, I'm realizing. But yeah, that quote is, <laughs> that's totally it. Yeah, and it's it's talking about styles that um, came from immigrant traditions that were brought to the city, meshed with the hip-hop traditions that were unfolding themselves in 1970s and 80s New York City against this backdrop of social unrest and, like, fiscal crisis. And, you know, it's hip-hop was birthed in this time period and also not just music but also visual art and performing art that was happening on the streets on the subway platforms like that is so much the beating heart of new york city and particularly these neighborhoods and that's what is making this film move and that Mm -hmm. is so important i love the way she calls out the club scene in this movie in particular because it's true. It has not received as much press coverage as like the giant Broadway-esque pool scene. For, well, that's not Broadway-esque. You couldn't do it on stage. Mm-hmm. But the big sort of production number of like 96,000, even though it is absolutely as impressive from a dance perspective. And the fact that the choreography team brought in Eddie Torres Jr. and Princess Serrano, mm-hmm. who are like New York City mambo royalty. I've said it before. I'll say it again. Mm-hmm. To do the film's Latin choreography, of which this club scene is the centerpiece, And the fact that they highlighted not the standard on one, quote unquote, salsa, but instead on two salsa, which is New York City salsa, that is what happens in the city. That's an immediate indicator of knowledge of and respect for the actual New York salsa community. That's verisimilitude and we love it. Yes, yes, absolutely. And I'm just (laughs) going to take a minute here to explain the difference between on one and on two, because as somebody who like for a year immersed myself in salsa, this is like something that I can't not talk about. (laughs) So the idea with on one is that you're taking your first step on the first beat of the music. So it's one, two, three, five, six, seven. For on two salsa, your first step is on the second beat. So it's one, two, three, 
five, six, seven. And it's actually the same footwork pattern. Like it's the same feet stepping at the same time, but the accents are totally different in a way that instead of dancing on the music, you're dancing inside the music. People also call it enclave because you're stepping on the clave beat, the tap, 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 tap. That tap, tap is the first step in your sequence. Um, it's just so much more intuitively musical. And that's what they're showcasing in this big club scene, which is it's just great. The other thing I want to talk about was Dharmani does note that making that clave beat, that tap, 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 sort of the heartbeat of the show, as Lynn manuel does, um, it does create some tension because it can push music and dance styles not rooted in that beat to the sidelines. And you do feel that a little bit, especially in terms of bachata, which we basically don't see in the film. We see very little of it here, very little of it. Which is odd, given that that is a quintessential Dominican form, and Isnavi is Dominican. Like, he would be doing bachata, like we should be hearing it somewhere. So that I thought was interesting. And then I also thought, you know, you can't really avoid right now the conversations that are happening about colorism in the mm -hmm. film, of the idea that it centers light-skinned Latinos and shows very few dark-skinned Afro-Latinos. I thought it was interesting that when asked about that directly, John Chu, the director, said, look at the dancers in the background. That's where you'll see the broadest range of skin tones. That's where you see the most diversity. And I'm having really complicated feelings about mm. that. Like, in some ways, there is something to be proud of there, that the dance parts of the film got things the most right in terms of representative diversity. But mm -hmm. then it's also disheartening that that didn't carry up to the lead roles. And it also, I do think, says something about... You know, this musical it debuted on Broadway, what was it, 2000? I got Eight or nine? Yeah, 2008 or nine. And it does say something about how much conversations have changed and shifted just in the last 10, 15 years around colorism and representation in Hollywood on Broadway. Um, because 10 or 15 years ago, it would probably, if this film had come out, it would probably just be like, oh my gosh, look at all this Latino representation. Mm -hmm. And now today we're able to have a more mm -hmm. nuanced conversation about like, okay, this does a lot. It can do more. Yeah. I, you know, I think overall, and I'm just, I'm echoing things that Lydia has said in the past year. We just need more works of mainstream film and dance and art that show more types of diversity so that this mm -hmm. one movie doesn't have to carry so much. Right. Yeah. Like Lin-Manuel should not be the only person having to carry this. John Chu should not be the only person having to carry this. More diversity yeah. everywhere. Theme of the show. More diversity everywhere. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll have our interview with the wonderful Ayadeli Cassell and Toria Beard. So stay tuned. It is my great pleasure now to be joined by both Ayadeli Cassell and Toria Beard. Welcome. Thank you both so much for joining on the podcast. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. Yes. Same. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you. And happy slightly belated birthday to both of you, right? Yes, yeah. indeed. Indeed. <laughs> yes. We have a, a little like happy birthday sign that's like outside of in our patio. It's now like fallen, but, <laughs> but I'm leaving it up there. You know? It's still festive. <laughs> yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so listeners, I know most of you know Ayodele and Toria already because they are so renowned in the dance world and, and beyond it too. Um, Ayodele is one of the greatest tap dancers and choreographers of our time. Toria is a brilliant director, creative consultant, choreographer, and producer. And together they create and curate art that explores identity and culture and language. And I actually don't want to say too much more because I want to start with the two of you telling your own stories. But before we begin, um, I just want to make sure listeners can match your names to your voices. So would you mind each of you saying a quick hello that includes your name? I'll start. Sure. Hi, I'm Ayodele. That's such a beautiful introduction. So thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Yes. Hello, everyone. This is Toria. So happy to be here. Great. Okay, so now that we've got that on the record, um, would you tell us a little bit about your your respective dance stories and then about your story together? Surely, I'll start. Um, so uh, my dance story actually probably begins a little bit later than most people. I, I started tap dancing uh, when I was 19 years old and in college. My uh, my dance experience prior to that was like just dancing to Janet Jackson in my room and in like my high school, uh, <laughs> you know, shows. Um, but dan- uh, tap was like my first discipline. Uh, and when I was, uh, I, I, I tell the story often, but my sophomore year, I was offered, I was an acting major and they offered me Tai Chi and tap as a movement course for actors. And I had already had gotten the bug of tap dancing when I was in high school um, because I saw Ginger Rogers and I thought like she was so cool and I wanted to be her and all that. So um, so when I got this opportunity to take a, a, a tap class, I was beyond thrilled. And and um, and that that's where it begins, 19 years old, you know, and I just became super obsessed with it. You know, it kind of about a year into that sort of remedial flat ball change, flat heel heel kind of classes, which I loved, by the way. I, and I, I don't look down on it at all because I really was like living my best life doing those um, very basic sort of things. But um, when I when I really learned like what was possible with tap dancing, which was about a year after that, I just became super obsessed and it just like it took over my life in the best, best way. So those are my those are my origin stories. What about you, Toriet? <laughs> yes. So I started dancing in Detroit, Michigan, which is where I was born and raised. And um, I went on to uh, study dance at the University of Michigan. So my roots are firmly planted in modern dance. Um, The first professional company I was ever in was called Cleo Parker Robinson Dance in Denver, Colorado. And there, um, I'm just gonna run down this list of names because I hardly ever get a chance to do this. I met and worked with Kevin Iaga Jeff, Dwight Roden, Gary Abbott, Donald Bird, Donald um, McHale, and Keith Lee. And that was just like in my first year in the company. So um, that's sort of like, set the tone for the rest of my career. It was heavily rooted in um, the African-American stories, um, storytelling, self-expression. Yeah, so that's where I started. And then I became um, really interested in commercial dance and musical theater. I was obsessed with Debbie Allen. She was one of my greatest (laughs) inspirations. Join the club. (laughs) Right? Who doesn't? Um, And so then I ended up, I spent um, a a good deal of time doing, um, like just trying to do commercial dance and had some success there. And then I spent a while in um, The Lion King, Disney's The Lion King on Broadway as a swing and a dance captain. So yeah. That's well, I love how like, okay, first of all, like when you say you were obsessed with Debbie Allen, like you were like, tell the story about the high school. How did you show up to your high school? 
<laughs> I was I, I used to dress I wanted to my I wanted to go to fan, the fame school so badly <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. that I pretended like I did so I would go to school dress like Debbie Allen in my leg warmers and my dance my leotard and tights <laughs> and I would get into the cafeteria like hoping they would play hot lunch but they never did <laughs> but I was I was fully committed to that that narrative yeah I like <laughs> I, I want. I do want to add something. The, the one thing that I was really clear about when um, when I realized that I wanted to like do this forever, like, was when I saw Noise Funk at the Public Theater, and it was like the first time that I had seen number one, like, um, really like young black people like in a theater space, sort of take up space with such authenticity, you know. And uh, you know, and at the time, you know, like I, I always say, like, you know, everybody talks about diversity and inclusion now. You know, it's like a, a hot topic and and an intentional way that organizations are trying to like you know order their business, but back then that's not really what was happening and so I was like one of two black people in my entire like NYU like you know Strasbourg class and so like and I so so I was pursuing this dream that I didn't think it was possible so when I saw them I thought like oh man like you know those those young men those guys are the you know they're the best and um so I was happy to eventually get a chance to you know be a part of Knots Not Your Ordinary Tappers with um, Savion and Jason mm-hmm. Daniels and so on and so forth but um it's been a nice journey for sure you know it's been an incredible journey for both <laughs> of you oh my gosh wait so so where in that journey then did you meet each other and start working together so I met Tori actually in 1997, and I was teaching tap dancing at um, Mind Builders Creative Arts Center, which is like this cultural arts facility in the Bronx uh, that um, was like an after-school program for young people. And I actually had attended there when I was 15. I I saw auditions in the paper that said, you know, dancers, actors, and I, I had a dream of being a performer. And so I auditioned for them and I was in their like youth company when I was 15, 16, 17 years old. So when I, when I was in my early twenties, I went back to teach there and Toria, I think you had just moved to the city, right? From, mm-hmm. from Colorado or from Chicago or from one of the, you know, from, yeah. So yes, from Chicago. So like, as I think about it now, looking way, way back, these, these, first couple of years that I danced with Cleo, it kind of set me up for the rest of my journey as a dancer. And I ended up, oh, so through, um, I ended up dancing with Kevin Jeff and part of the Jubilation Legacy and someone who was also um, mentored me very early on was Crystal Hall Glass, who was at the time running the dance department at Mind Builders. So when I moved to New York, I had no money and no job. And she's <laughs> like, I have a job for you. And so I was, that was my first job teaching at Mind Builders. And that's how we met. That's how we met. Yep. And then, you know, I was touring a lot and I'm sure Tori, you had your own things going on. And we actually reconnected via Facebook, like many, many years later, I want to say like 2000, I don't know, four, five, six, I don't remember. Um, Cause I saw her, she kept posting about Savion's show. She was like, and I was like, is she a tap dancer now? Like, I just kept thinking like, well, <laughs> I remember she was mo- doing modern dance, but I, and so I remember asking her, I said, are you tap dancing? And she was like, no, 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 I'm doing PR for his, uh, for his show at the Joyce. And so, you know, one of Toria's many, many hats that she wears, <laughs> right? So, yeah. and, and that's how we sort of reconnected, you know? And so now you are both life partners and art partners. And it seems like, I mean, there's definitely like an alchemy to that relationship, right? Like there has to be a little bit of magic there. So can you talk about what makes you such good collaborators? Like what are the different perspectives and qualities that you each bring to the work that you do together? 
I love that question. I actually love that you said alchemy because uh, we say like I always you know say that Tori is like a creative alchemist. Um, <laughs> but um, I think that um, I mean I knew that Tori wasn't a tap dancer, but I also but I did know that she is somebody. Why well, she's a Gemini? She's very creative, and she was very uh, interested always in using all aspects of her creativity and creative expression. And and I don't know. I felt like and and I don't know Tori if maybe you feel differently, but um, I think I was at a point in my like artistic expression like especially when I did while I have the floor that I wrote in 2017 for Spoleto Arts Festival where I I just I think I needed um community and support around me like my art like just art making um I was starting to write more which is a whole other skill set than dancing um I was also like writing something that was really personal um and you know, I felt very vulnerable at the time. And I think that in, in, in some ways, like I think it, our initial entry was maybe like, I needed like creative support and emotional support around the work that I was creating, you know? Um, and so, um, and then she, cre she for the Spoleto Arts Festival presentation, um, you brought in like your whole, the whole team, like the lighting, the lighting designer, some of my, my, the people who did the sound, you just had access to all of these folks, you know, so, and, and you were sort of like the exact, like the executive producer of that particular thing, you know, in mm -hmm. addition to being my sounding board to when I was feeling like crazy and all that stuff. So it was, you know, I'm sure you were tasked with a lot in, in, in that work <laughs> with yeah. me. But I think also what I appreciated about her perspective, having been in Lion King, having been a dancer and having worked and, and covered the space, is that tap dancers aren't really allowed, hadn't been allowed to really cover space in that way. Because if you notice, we're relegated very often to four by four pieces tap of wood. boards. Yeah, yeah. tap boards. So you can be in a, on a festival on a bill that has a 40 by 40 stage, but you can only dance on a four by four. And so I think that I think people underestimate how limiting that can be to artists, you know, for tap, percussive artists. Right. Because we are it's it's called tap dancing. There's a musical element to it with your footwork, but there's also movement that it, that is can be beautifully expressed. But if you're not nurtured in that way, if you're not given the space and the support, then you don't get a chance to really fully develop that thing. And um, and I knew that Toria knew how to do that. And so um, I I wanted her as we started to as I started to create more work, I wanted her to be my eye and to really just help develop that skill in me. And what about you, Tori? What do you, what do you think? Um, I would say, first of all, we really like each other. And I think that's very important. <laughs> and, you know, it may sound cliche. I love you. <laughs> well, go ahead. I love you too. Um, but, you know, it may sound cliche, but we, we also assume best intentions because I know sometimes, um, you know, it's very close to your heart and it can be, it can cause injury when someone speaks to you about your work in a certain way or pushes you to do something that maybe you think is outside your comfort zone or won't work. So um, I think that's helpful, like knowing that if ever I make a suggestion, it really is just, you know, the goal is to support the work. It's not to judge or to, to change anything or even to impose my own uh, vision on it many times. Um, so I think that's how, why we work well together. Um, and then I would say that was a good segue, Ayadeli, because 
I've always been music obsessed. I've just always really, really been into music. My aunt is a singer, my father's a musician. And so um, when we were dating and, and I started uh, accompanying Ayadeli to tap festivals, I just became, I'd always loved tap dancing, but I hadn't really been exposed to it as musical expression in the way that I was when I was uh, going to these festivals with her. And I was like, so inspired by it. And then also thinking there are so many stories here. There's so much expression here. I wanna like participate in this. And so um, we just started having conversations about it and we built things from there. Yeah, you each, you each enhance each other's storytelling abilities. I love that. And like the, the compassionate approach, it's all rooted in compassion. Um, it's almost hard to figure out where to start when we're talking about the projects you've been working on because you're doing everything. There's so much on your plate right now. Um, but I guess I want to, I, the place I decided to start was talking about your involvement with Little Island because Ayadeli is now artist in residence there. And then it was recently announced that the two of you are co-curating the Little Island Dance Festival this September, which is so exciting. When, how did this Little Island partnership come about? What were the beginnings of it? Yeah, so last of uh, January or February, uh, Julia Krause, uh, who's the producer there, reached out to me and said, we're building this island here in New York. I was like, what, an island on the Hudson? <laughs> like, <laughs> she's, um, and she said, you know, we intend on having a lot of artistic programming and we would love to talk to you about, you know, doing something here. So she uh, invited um, me to basically visit the space, which was li literally like had cranes. I mean, the tulip bulbs were in place, but it was just cranes everywhere. There was no greenery. I, of course, I brought Toria along. We did go with, we went to the space with like, you know, they gave us hard hats and, you know, the, the vests with the reflectors and we had to wear construction boots. There's a story there that maybe, you know, that could, could accompany a visual that can accompany this particular podcast of Toria. Toria saying no. <laughs> because Toria, no, because Toria wore like fashion boots and not like, you know, like, like, you know, work boots. So they had to like, <laughs> Give her some construction booths that were like seven <laughs> sizes too big. And it was really funny. But anyway, the long story short, we saw this thing. Uh, we saw this space and I was like, oh my God, this is going to be incredible. Um, it was so exciting to think that, that not only was there something being built for New Yorkers, but that it was really created with the intention of hosting artists and hosting art and in various configurations within the park. And that was beautiful. I thought that that was like one of the best things about it. Um, and then a couple months later, um, she called me back and she was like, okay, we want to talk to you about something else. She said, you know, would you consider um, like being artist in residence so that your the work that you do here is much, it's, it's a little bit more uh, involved than just, you know, showing up to do a, a performance. And I, I didn't hesitate at all. I had actually, it was to me, it was like a dream offer because one of the things that I had been really looking forward to um, and, and the development of my career is to be in, be at the table where, where decisions are being made um, and not just be somebody who's like in front performing. So um, when she, when she made that really generous invitation, I, I jumped at the chance, you know, and one of the things that um, we were tasked with was, um, curating their the you know their their little island dance festival and i brought you know tori had been there just sort of like as a as a guest with me when we went to see the space but then i was like i i do everything with Toria because I just believe so much in like just her point of view and her vision. And, and they were like, absolutely. <laughs> and so they brought her on as co-curator of this festival. Um, but it is so exciting. What's really um, 
exciting to me is that um, the attention and the care that um, has been put into creating an environment that truly does honor the artists, you know, and, and they're so committed to making sure that it is a wonderful experience. And that that even applies to us, you know, as far as like the kind of freedom and support we've been experiencing. It's really exciting. Yeah. And I, I, I also want to say, like, I mean, also, they, you know, they they built it with the intention of being for all New Yorkers and, and wanting to reach every aspect of the communities here, you know, in the city. But as an artist, as a percussive artist, one of the things that I love about uh, the way that they have operated from day one is that they listen. And so, for example, like even the flooring, like as they're creating this thing from scratch, I was like, okay, if I'm involved, that means that we need wood floors and we need, you know, and, and we're going to right. yeah. buy percussive artists. And they were like, okay, what kind of floor? And so, and I was like, okay, this is the floor that I use, or this is the floor that I've used. It's very convenient. And they went ahead and invested in a proper sprung wood floor for percussive artists and like that that kind of like uh, consideration is like um, we're almost never afforded like i was gonna say ever. that is unheard of that is amazing yeah is, yeah and i'm just like i'm so like i'm proud i'm proud of them i'm proud to be a part of it and i'm grateful that they were that you know that they listen that they listen that is like a, it's unheard of <laughs> thank you julia <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I will say that I'm like sort of obsessed with the idea of just with creativity as a concept, right? Can it be um can it be increased? Like what types of things affect it or 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 inform, you know, our creativity? And um I feel like when you're sharing your brain, your heart and your spirit with so many other considerations, I wonder if if, if um, creativity suffers. So when you're invited to do something, if your first concern is, what is the surface I'm gonna have to dance on? Am I gonna have to navigate this? Do I have to bring my own floor? Like you're thinking about, well, how many dances can I have? We have a very limited space. Like all, I wonder if all of those things can can sort of like inhib inhibit the creativity of the artist. You know, what? how can freedom help us, you know, I don't know, help our, help, um, our creative impulses really, really soar and really fly and help us become more fully expressed. So I think this is like, it may seem like a small thing, but I think it's transformative. No, it's huge. I and mean, this is why I love good arts administrators, because that is exactly what they do is that they allow artists the mental space mm -hmm. to do the creative thinking that they need to do. They get all the other logistical stuff off yeah. their plate out of the way. Yeah. I also want, if I can give a shout out to like even even Aaron Maddox over at the Joyce Theater, because Aaron is somebody who I feel like I have felt, God, I have felt so supported by him just because I feel like I, it's like he infuses you with the confidence to do anything you want to do. Like even when he invited us to do Chasing Magic, like he was like, we have this date or this date time frame. And he's like, what do you want to do? What do you, you know, whatever you want to do, just let us know what you want to do. And that's it. Like, I mean, and, and, and that. You know, I don't know. There's something like you to your point, Tori, about the freedom, like what it does. You're like, okay, I it could be it can be anything, and he there's trust there. You know, um, I don't know. I think that's why we were able to like create what we did there because of partly because of the tone that was set. Trust, trust. That's really it. It's the mm -hmm. trust. Mm -hmm. um, so, so 
for the Little Island Dance Festival, you have this space, you have that trust in that relationship, and you're bringing in all of these amazing percussive dance forms to the park. Can you talk a little about how the two of you developed the festival together? Like, what was your vision as you were putting together this group of performers? We, um, Julia, Toria, um, Alvernique over at, uh, um, uh, over at Little Island, we had many, many Zoom calls about what this festival week was going to look like. And we sort of like, you know, we, we'd brainstorm and I would think about it. And like, I don't know, finally, I got to the point where I was like, okay, I think this is what the missing piece at, at one point was like, if you're, if I'm there, then certain things are really important to me as a human and as an artist, right? And so I want the week to reflect that. So for me, if you know anything about me, if anybody has read any one thing about anything, you know, that was very important to me is culture. Very important is obviously percussive dance. Um, the idea of uh, authenticity and language and communication, true expression, also um, integrity. And so we wanted the, the week to, to have, um, we wanted to include artists that really, whose work naturally speaks to all of that, that, that they speak to social justice, that they speak to inclusivity, that it speaks to the roots and origins of whatever their, their, percuss their, their, their art form is, you know? Yeah, there are some other surprises. You know, I think I'm also interested in, um, how should I say it, challenging the idea of standards or norms or whatever like traditional guidelines seem to be as far as like who is afforded the luxury of being center stage. So um, there are some other things that we, we have in there that I think are going to be pretty surprising and very exciting. So um, yeah, stay tuned. Stay tuned. <laughs> yeah. Um, I want to talk about the idea of dance for the community um, because I mean, so often dance performance is this like insular exclusionary thing. It's happening in a theater or some other like closed off, like rarefied space. And I think one of the silver linings of the pandemic is that it's pushed a lot of dance either outside where it kind of automatically becomes a community performance or online where it's accessible to a much wider audience. And the two of you have created and you're continuing to create such beautiful projects in both of those spaces. I mean, Chasing Magic, the digital show you did for the Joyce that you've been referring to, was so joyful. And then you've been involved also in the New York Pops Up performances outdoors, among your many other endeavors. So how can the dance world kind of grow and reinforce that idea of dance as community art? Mm -hmm. And do you think that shift will will stick as the pandemic subsides? I would love for it to, I mean, I would love for it to stick. People have often asked me like, oh, what's your favorite venue to play in? You know, and I'm like, I, I like to be with where, with the people who want to be with me. Right. <laughs> so, and that has happened from everywhere from the six train station at, you know, in Hunts Point in, in the Bronx, like literally right outside the platform to when I was younger in the platform, where I was just dancing and people would gather and the white house and Carnegie hall. I've done, I've done, I've done that all. And I think that, um, I just think it's, I think it's really important and really energizing and really humbling and a beautiful experience to spend, just spend time with people in all environments, right? Um, and I think that we have underestimated as, I think not, not only artists, but even institutions have underestimated like the value and, and the beauty of that, of connection with human beings in period, no matter what container we happen to be in, you know? Um, and I think that, um, 
when when I we did a city center on the move, like I think it was like 28, 2019 tour. I don't remember 2019, 2018. Um, and we got a chance to kind of go through the community centers in all the five boroughs and to to spend time with like literally in the audience would be like two year olds and ninety two year olds, you know. And there were people who not always, you know. A, maybe don't have the, uh, I don't want to say only that that finances are a deterrent, but sometimes it's just like, what you know, you're in your community and it's insular and you kind of have your routine and it, you don't think about buying a ticket to at New York City Center or at the Joyce or at, you know, anywhere. Um, but to like be able to bring the same level of like artistry quality and like intent to those communities, to me, like meant everything. I had uh, like my neighbors who had been neighbors with for like 25 years went who had never seen me dance in person went to the Bronx Center to to you know to check to check it out um and I think also like with Chasing Magic what we saw was like like Toria's dad lives in um Florida and you know he was able to my mom lives in Puerto Rico and they were able to tune in whereas like it would have been a lot harder for them to you know to to come to New York City I mean or practically impossible you know I think I find power in it originating from me, the artist, to 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 maybe request that and demand that, and to make those and to create those spaces. You know what I mean? To say like, no, it's important. Like I love this, like being in a theater and it's beautiful and the lights and all that. But also, there's value in like literally setting up your board and being in the park or just you know and 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 engaging in that way as well. You know, uh, Tori, what do you think about that? Well, I think dance was born in community. It is something that happens uh, with people and their families. Uh, every type of celebration, it marks most all occasions, right? And so the fact that it has been taken away from the community in some respects and, and put in these, um, I forget how you, um, how you described it, in the rarefied <laughs> spaces, um, is curious, right? Why why has that happened? And what, we are the same people no matter where we perform. The artistry mm. that we carry with us is the same. Whether we're dancing, you know, in the middle of the street for New York Pops Up or, you know, in whatever theater on whatever stage, right? And so, I don't know. I mean, this is, it seems like, a, may seem like a simple question, but I think, there's so many layers to this and i and my short the shortest answer i can give is that yes i hope this continues on i hope we stop the the idea that dance for the community or we move away from the idea that there's a certain type of dance that is created for community consumption and there's another type of dance that is created for theaters and to be programmed for a season ticket holder you know um because there is something troubling in that. I think it creates a disconnect with our within our society, you know, and I hope we continue with this this type of generosity and this type of sharing. And, you know, everybody's saying what's going to happen when we go back. And I that is very like triggering to me. I, I love to think of it as when we go forward and I hope we move forward uh, with this same type of energy that we are emerging with. Yeah, with the natural generosity of dance. Dance is a generous art. And actually, that's kind of the next question is, is that generosity is a through line in a lot of the work that you do too. this idea of sharing knowledge, sharing history, sharing joy. Um, why? I mean, it feels like almost a, an obvious question, but why is it important for dance to do that? And why is dance so good at doing that? 
Maybe because it is rooted in our inherent humanity, you know, like moving and um, heartbeat and uh, wanting to connect and wanting to express and wanting to share. Like, I think it's just a natural progress. It's just a natural, um, I don't know, that's how we relate, you know? It's probably the the easiest way to sort of to to express and connect and 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 be and be joyful. <laughs> well, I think discipline and um, like are I don't I don't want to call it achievement, but yeah, like if you set a goal for yourself, achieve, achieving that goal through discipline is not separate from joy and and authentic expression and community. Like speaking of community, I do feel like when you have when your work is rooted and your expression is rooted in generosity and, and community, that is what reaches the people. They may not know, you know, oh, the, the heel was forward and the toe was beautifully <laughs> pointed or whatever, but they will know the, the energy that the group on stage has and they will take that, carry that away with them. Um, so that's why I think generosity and really seeing each other and really participating together in performance is really important because people may not be able to um, articulate why they love something, but I believe that that sometimes is a large part of it. The word that comes up frequently from what I have seen in my lifetime of dancing is the word joy. My name means joy has arrived. So on one hand, it's like unsurprising, but I think that it makes sense because I love tap dancing. Like I, like I love it as a as a form, like I love what it represents, but I actually love doing it. And I loved it from the moment that I saw it. Right. And I love, like, I still get so excited to like, I, sometimes I don't even lace up my shoes, like when I'm like about to practice, because I just want to hurry up and get to moving my feet, you know? <laughs> and so, and because I love it so much, I really want everybody to love it just as much, you know? And so I think my, my intention when I'm dancing, um, most often is that I, I just want to share, I just want to share it. You know, and I want people to feel how I feel, even though I know that most people who watch me can't physically do what I'm doing, but I just want them to feel the feeling, <laughs> to feel that, that the feeling that I have of, of the joy and the appreciation and the love for it and for the ability to like, that I have found this in my life, the, this way of expressing myself is like, you know, I like I would not have ever thought that I would be live a life as a tap dancer. And then here I have been, you know, just, feeling very fulfilled by that very fact. And I think that um, we can all, we all have something I think that does that for us. And so like Toria said, like the, the, what's important is the identification of the feeling and not necessarily of the technical thing, you know? Yeah. I was cracking up as you were talking about starting to dance before tying your shoes, because my, my five-year-old daughter has that same problem. And I feel like most people <laughs> lose that level of enthusiasm by like age 10, but you never lost it. You never I've lost, never it. lost and it. I get so excited. I mean, it's like, it's still, it's like, I don't know, maybe it's a little strange, but I just know really it. <laughs> it's great. We, we need more of that. Actually. Yeah. And, and when you're talking about sharing that joy and sharing that love, a big part of that is sharing it with the next generation too. And I wanted to talk a little about the work that you both do with a broader way foundation. Um, which works to amplify the power of young women and femmes through the arts. So can you talk about the work you actually do there and, and what it means to you? I will say I've been with a broader way since the first year, since the beginning of the effort. And um, I am, I was just thinking about this today. I'm just incredibly proud of what we've done and how the organization has grown over the last 11 years. Um, and 
what we do is really whatever is required. Whatever our future leaders, as we call them, or leaders in training um, need, that is what we work to do. There is a structure, there is a curriculum, and and everything is um, designed to help offer the opportunity for them to gain leadership skills. And that loosely means being the leader of your own journey, your own life, pursuing your dreams. Um, and with, with a certain um, sensitivity to the fact that you are a member of a community, that you have something to offer, that there are people who are at your back pushing you forward. We do all of this through um, offering an opportunity for our participants to um, engage in artistic and develop artistic practices. So um, we do that through dance, uh, music, spoken word, and theater in the in the early years. And then um, in the latter, it's a four-year program minimum, six to eight years maximum. After the first four years, um, and Ayadeli can talk about that because she, I'm the executive director of the program and Ayadeli is the director of the graduate program. So I'll just keep it to the future leader program, which is the first four years. Um, in, the, in the third and fourth years, um, the young people have an opportunity to participate in the authorship program. Um, and the real thought behind that is, is the idea of writing your own story, authoring your own narrative. After that, they can apply to be uh, in the graduate program. So take it away, Ayadeli. Yeah, and I'm the director of grad programs. So um, uh, after their four years, they get to basically interview to be a leader in training in LIT. And there are about 24 uh, participants per level, but um, we only accept around six for this. It's basically like, it's like the next level, uh, the next level training. This is the, you know, prepare you for the real world, get your ish together, uh, two year program, <laughs> essentially. Uh, and what I love about it is that I get to really like, because there's just six of them um, at any given time, like I get a chance to really um, just spend time and get to know what it is because at by this point at 14 15 years old 16 they start to like you know think about what they want to do for the rest of their lives and you know what what their interests are and how can i basically help support that for them um one of the things that we work on is their um public speaking and just really sort of standing confidently in your voice and 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 speaking up and speaking out and you know speaking to uh, you know, to power. And um, I, I developed this uh, exercise with them over the summer. Um, I call it like personal mission statements. Basically, I have them answer, I am, I believe I fight for. I feel so honored to get the opportunity to spend that time with them. I think it takes a lot of uh, courage, um, grace, and also um, trust uh, and vulnerability for them to allow us to to guide them in that way. And I don't take that for granted at all, you know? So um, it, it I, I feel like they they hold us accountable as well. So it, I feel like, you know, we, we all grow together each and every time. So um, that's that's the work, part of the work that we do there with, with those young women. Yeah, it feels really good. It's, I just think about the people who stopped, you know, took a pause to invest in me, to ask me what I thought about things, to, um, encourage me to really see me and how that changed the way I the the way I considered possibilities for myself. 
And I think it's incredibly important, you know, and I also, you know, want to shout out uh, Idina Menzel, who is our, our founder, and this was all her idea, you know, and I, I do feel like there's something to that, you know, it's like, the more, like they say, the more you know, and the more you have, the greater your responsibility to reinvest that. And I think that is really important. We'll link to a broaderway.org in the show notes just so that listeners can find out more about that for themselves, because I know we could talk about this for another whole episode, too, and I'm sorry that we can't. No, it's okay. Um, I'm I'm going to end with a question that is the question, basically. It's, um, I mean, we've touched on this a little bit already, but so a lot of dance artists, especially over the past year, have been reconsidering or deepening the way that they think about the relationship between art and social justice. Hmm. And that relationship is key to so much of the work that you both do. So how do you believe that art and especially dance can speak to issues of race and identity and politics? Well, I speak very frequently about how I think tap dancing, because of its history and its origins, really intersects squarely right in the middle of all of those things, you know? Um, and, you know, it's, I, I, and maybe some people think it's ironic because you wouldn't think that tap dancing, this thing that we know as like being, you know, in movies in the 30s and 40s that entertains would actually like do that. But um, it does. It does. You know, we, we can't speak about this particular art form and not discuss race and not discuss, um, American history and not discuss a really painful and, and, and horrible time in American history, you know? Um, and then also I, I particularly feel like it's really important to really have a, a, a zoomed out view and a very internalized view of it so that you can um, educate folks. And then also for the purpose of um, making sure that we don't repeat those patterns that were very damaging, you know, not only to us as humans, but even maybe even to the art form itself, you know? Um, and so I, I have, I have, I recognize it when I read the history and when I see the uh, evolution of it, you know, but I also know it from my own perspective as a black and Puerto Rican woman in, a, uh, in what was very much a male dominated form. I feel a, a, a responsibility to honor it by being truthful about what uh, what the art form holds and what, you know, and so I, I, I feel very compelled always to speak about, um, to speak about its origins, to speak about erasure, you know, to speak about, you know, the difference, like even when we talk about, you know, the origins and people say Irish folks and, and black folks and the five points and to talk about like, well, there's a difference between indentured servitude and also slavery, you know, like we have to be able to really talk about those nuances in order to understand some of the, the issues that we're dealing with today, you know, and I believe that if you, if you come at it with with good intentions or with the intentions of 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 seeking understanding and seeking a way path for a path forward then you can't lose you ha you know you can bring you can bring up you can bring up the very tough stuff <laughs> and 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 possibly like shift things so that you know um i don't know so so that we're all better for it at the end of it you know uh from my perspective i think i think we're all seeking liberation hmm. right and so we can only take ourselves but so far but i but i also feel like people who are in positions of power have to take a hard look at what they can do to make changes to open spaces to um honor this 
thing that I feel like we've always been doing, which is offering our work authentically, which is moving conversations forward. And and I don't think every um, I don't think every dance piece has to be about it can you can just tell a story right because i think that also moves the conversation um in the direction of a more just society if you can lay out a story and somebody can see themselves in that story then that brings us closer together as humans right but what i think what i've been circling lately is how can the structures that are in place um participate in this in this um movement for social justice. And I know that is a, a big, a big thing, but it starts with what we've been talking about. It's like, who are you programming? What are the, what are the, what are you doing to support their work if you're programming them? Um, you know, how can we stop referring to certain dance forms as, oh, that's very specific, or, you know, telling somebody that their audience won't respond to their work because it's not you know, like in the center of what you've been doing for so many years, I think I feel very optimistic because we have had to take a complete pause, right? And hopefully, you know, we've all been thinking a lot and having these conversations and getting in touch with like our, how the the world we want to live in. And I am hoping that we can meet in the middle. You know, the people who are who are creating and generating and performing the work can meet with the people who hold the purse strings, who hold the, the keys to the theater doors, um, rehearsal spaces, all all of that. You know, that's what I think. That's kind of a beautiful place to end. <laughs> um, although, actually, before we before we go, can you talk just a little bit about some of the projects that you have on the horizon? You have so many things coming up. Idella, you're about to be on a stamp. I just heard that Chasing yes. Magic is going to be performed live this fall. There's there's so much happening. Are there a few things you want to call out? Yeah, I mean that is that one is like I'm still my mind is a little boggled. Yeah, I'm going <laughs> to be on a stamp representing this art form that I love. That I just I could cry thinking about it. But um, yeah, it's cool. <laughs> I mean, talk really about cool. community art. That is like, art. yeah, I, I love that. I'm very proud of it. I'm I'm proud that I'm alive to see it because, you know, you generally you have to be dead to be on a stamp. So, so I'm proud that I, I that I get to see it. Um, I'm proud that um, Chasing Magic is going to be live. The fact that I get to go back to Cambridge to ART to Harvard, a place that I love, is like really exciting. Um, you know, Little Island is on the horizon. Um, I have some concerts uh, with uh, Broadway Inspirational Voices uh, happening for Juneteenth. Juneteenth, Juneteenth at Lincoln Center, which Toria is curating and she hired me for. Thank you, Toria. Um, <laughs> and there's like something actually really huge that I hope maybe, you know, we can do an addendum to, to this this particular podcast down the line yeah. later on this year that I'm really excited about. But um, things are things are looking up. They're looking up for the art form. They're looking up, I think, for, for um, a lot of people. And I'm just I'm thrilled to be on the journey. Well, thank you both. We're so I'm so excited to hear more about that. Yes, definitely have to have you on for a part two once you can say more about that feature project. Um, mm -hmm. Thank you for all of the beautiful work that you're doing in the dance world and the arts world more broadly. And happy Pride! I didn't say happy Pride yet. Yay! Yeah. Happy Pride. Thank you. We had a Pride shake from uh, Shake Shack the other day. It was very good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was afraid, but it was very, it was quite delicious. <laughs> Oh, 
you know, out of one side of my mouth, I'm like, oh, this pride capitalism. But on the other side, I'm like, oh, this shit is really good. That's the thing. It's like commercial pride is one thing, but then sometimes it's really kind of great. Yeah. <laughs> Find the happy spot in the middle. Um, Thank you again. And I'm excited to see you both at at Little Island in a few months, if not before. Yes. Thank you so much. What a delight this was. I just, I loved it. Thank you. Yes. Thank you so much. Thanks again to Ayadeli and Toria. We will absolutely have them on the Dance Edit Extra down the road for a second round once they can share more details about that future project, which sounds so great. And we've got links to both of their websites and to the Little Island site in the show notes, of course, but I actually just wanted to give another shout out to the Lincoln Center Juneteenth event they're, they're part of, um, which Courtney mentioned in the intro. It's called Coming Together, a Juneteenth Celebration, and it will feature not just great dance, but also music and poetry. Um, so we've put a link with more information about that in the show notes as well. All right. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. We will be back next week for more discussion of the news that's moving the dance world. Keep learning, keep advocating, and keep dancing. Mind how you go, friends. Bye, everybody. The Dance Edit Podcast is a product of Dance Media, publisher of Dance Magazine, Dance Spirit, Point, Dance Teacher, Dance Business Weekly, and the Dance Edit Newsletter. Our hosts are Amy Brandt, Courtney Escoyne, Margaret Fuhrer, and Lydia Murray. Our music is by Celestine, with special thanks to Broadway Dance Center for helping us record those footfall sounds. Find out more about The Dance Edit and subscribe to our daily newsletter at thedanceedit.com. Thank you.